HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Hearst Ranch, the nation's largest single-source supplier of free-range, all-natural, grass-fed, and grass-finished beef. For more information, visit HearstRanch.com. Broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn, you're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Welcome to the Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel, here today with a very special international guest flown all the way in from Paris to join me, uh, also proving that good things do come out of Craigslist, but that's another story. <laughs> Claude Cabri, a.k.a. Miss Lunch, thank you for being here. Lovely to be here, Harlan. This is kind of fantastic. I actually met Claude, uh, how many, maybe five years ago? Centuries ago. Centuries. While I was uh, traveling in France, I think I put an ad on Craigslist saying, looking for a place to stay, uh, I do photography, I'm interested in food, we'll cook a meal, blah, blah, blah. And uh, we've been friends ever since. How'd you like that? Bob's your uncle. <laughs> Bob is your uncle. Um, well, Claude is a fascinating person. Uh, comes from many places, has many cultural influences. Originally born in Ottawa. No, no. born in Belgium. In Belgium, yeah. That happens. <laughs> when your grandfather is a diamond dealer, Flemish speaking, uh, you tend to land up in funny places. So, from Belgium, I mean, I know you've bounced around the globe. Where did your life take you? I mean, Well, I grew up in Canada, so I am Canadian. I've lived longer now in Paris. My cat, uh, Melba, just passed away. She was 21. And uh, so I feel like an adopted Parisian. Paris is my home. But uh, there you go. Also, European background and South Africa, of course, with a lot of Italy involved as well. So you say South Africa. I know you had a great-grandmother that was Egyptian, or or grandmother that was Egyptian. Yes, my father's mother was um, Catholic Syrian, but 
persecuted at that time. So then she was born in Alexandria and she grew up in Egypt. My father grew up with e in Egypt as well. And actually, he went to school with Claudia Roden, oh, the yeah. famous cook. Yeah. And uh, we are still friends. And uh, from time to time, I correspond with her. She's a wonderful woman. So where do your influences for art and cuisine come from? Because uh, when I see you cook uh, as Miss Lunch... Um, I mean, it comes from all over the globe. Lately, you've been in Pantelleria. You love uh, Tunisian influences. Uh, I mean, where do you hone your skills and what kind of foods excite you? From uh, all my family background, growing up in Canada, of course, the f family was very based on um, having dinner parties, you know, with all the, the dinner parties, with the meals from all the origins, whether it being South African, Belgian, um, Italian, uh, Middle Eastern, and, uh, and then and from then it takes on to other 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 things that I do within Paris, within Italy. Um, I'm very fond of a little island where I go caper picking. And that was thanks to my South African aunt who married an Italian. So my, yearly I go and pick capers and that's a very important part of my cooking as well. Yeah, Real capers, <laughs> you've never had them. <laughs> but one day maybe you'll import or share with the rest of the world. Well, you know, it's my own harvest, but yeah. I do share. I'm, I'm, I'm known for sharing, that's for sure. <laughs> so uh, uh, sharing some more information about yourself. You weren't initially a cook. I mean, you, you spent years kind of uh, thinking you were going to be an artist, which you are now amalgamating you know food into it but uh, what kind of art what kind of mediums did you work in well i always worked on uh, uh art painting to do with food things that looked and tasted uh like they could be chocolate or or icing coated or or something minty in flavor so they were installations three-dimensional uh canvases um at the art school i went to the beaux-arts in paris but uh, I must say that art and cooking were always, always ever since I was tiny, uh, always linked together. It's true. My, my first KitchenAid was given to me by, by, by my aunt when I was 11. So uh, I, I, I wasn't involved in cooking, but in a, in a, lesser, in a lesser way. But I, I, I mean, I was a, a caterer when I was from 11 to 16. <laughs> I used to make uh, copies of Martha Stewart at the time when she was quite a splendid princess on those cover books. I used to copy her, copy her wedding cakes and sell them to the, to the, to the neighborhood. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. Yeah. Um you say uh, Beaux-Arts, you know, the art school. Beaux-Arts, oui, l'école des Beaux-Arts. Um, so it's literally across from the Louvre, right? In right, the left right bank. opposite. Mm -hmm. um, and dealt with antiquities, or was it more contemporary? Oh, totally contemporary. Uh, the director wanted to have uh, workshops with invited artists from all over the world. So uh, we were always uh, encouraged to follow uh, different <coughs> workshops for different credits that we needed. So anything from painting to sculpture to to mold making to it, it it's still a fabulous, fabulous school. Yeah, I mean, you talk about all these techniques, uh, mold making, uh, I mean, easily translate back in the food. Uh, I've seen you do such things as make macarons, and uh, which have a sculptor-like quality to them in how you prepare these ingredients. Do you think that education in the arts informed how you cook? 
Well, for sure. Uh, when I was, if I was putting together a, an installation, it, it would be something that would be tasty looking, but not necessarily edible. And uh, in the other way, when it was food, it would be edible, but perhaps there would be a drawing or something with color that would be the exercise or the sketch that I would prepare before putting the piece together. Yeah. Do you remember the first time you put together a dinner party all by yourself? Oh. Well, I do remember when I was little, I used to have a little cafe, and I, I have no idea why, but it was called the Bulbs of God. <laughs> and uh, I used to have friends that would come, artist friends, and I was literally maybe 12 or 13 years old, and artist friends would come by, and the whole dining room was kind of s- separated into little tables, so it was like a cafe scene. And I would serve uh, crepe, crepe, all kinds of crepes, with, uh, stuffed with apple pudding or with maple syrup syrup or the crepe Suzette fashion and uh, that I do remember and then other my parents having this house that was in quite a lovely area in the big garden space I would often have a big table and I, I'd have on several occasions little uh, lunches for all my school friends even the postman would come by and have a little nibble <laughs> yeah, I mean you now have Miss Lunch um, can you explain what that is a little <laughs> bit? Because, I mean, it feels like you're just reverting back to childhood a little bit and entertaining almost in the same joyful way. Well, you know, thank heavens I still am a child. <laughs> <coughs> Someone recently told me that uh, Claude, cheapers, she always thinks everybody is older than she is. Well, perhaps that's the way I'm going to feel, even if everybody continuously seems younger these days. But um, there you go. What can you do? Uh Miss Lunch is, is a beautiful place now that's um, thanks to the creator of the Olive Oil Company, Première Pression Provence. The man behind all of this is Olivier Bousson, and he is from Provence himself. He is the founder of Occitane. And uh, after the holidays, he decided to demolish the first store, olive oil store in Paris on Trois Rue Antoine Volon and turn it into a kitchen and have me as an artist and a cook for uh, an experimental year. So that's what I'm doing at the moment. Yeah. So and lunch too. Uh, it's a funny thing, I think, in Paris. I mean, it, how do you say déjeuner? Déjeuner, yeah. So déjeuner. Uh, is it a big thing in Paris? I mean, do people go to bistros and have sandwiches, soups, salads? What is the typical lunch? Yes, soups they're not terribly fond of. Um, sandwiches they're not fond of either. Uh, they do buy sandwiches, but from a boulangerie, so that'll be more something they will have uh, eating in front of the computer. But they are very partial to uh, a nice full meal with a bit of meat or a bit of fish and a nice little salad on the side. Not necessarily a green salad. I've also noticed that they're not too partial to homemade ice cream. <laughs> it isn't uh, culturally the thing that they will have for dessert. They prefer a kind of a cream, either a lemon cream or a caramel cream kind of pudding form of a dessert and uh, yeah it's a a very reasonably priced uh, menu during the week Uh, a lot of people from offices come uh, for their quick little hour break and come for a miss lunch menu yeah so I mean it's such a beautiful quaint little place definitely uh, reflects your 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 character Um, 
and what's so cool about it is, you know, you do these curated little lunches, but you are also very a part of those people's lives. Aside from them being regulars, uh, I don't know. It feels like going to bistros in Paris, uh, plates dropped off at a table, whereas you're there almost performing while cooking. Yes, they certainly feel at home. Uh, there were a lot of uh, single women for all those bachelors out there <laughs> that uh, came regularly because they do feel at home. It's such a lovely place where you feel good. There's my big uh, tapestry. Sometimes there are little pieces of my art that are also around. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very small place, but it's a place where one feels really nice. Yeah, and the food is beautiful. I mean, when uh, Megan and I ate there. The weather was <laughs> terrible. <laughs> but it was glowing inside. <laughs> but you have such a wonderful market right there to draw from. Right. How Le Marché d'Aligre. How long, and that's in the 12th, right? Right. And how long have you been living uh, in that area? Oh, for 22 years, yeah. I would say. Yeah, because Melba, you know, she passed away. Well, in May, she was 21. So uh, that area with the uh, Marché right there. Um I'm assuming it's grown over the years. But, I mean, we have Union Square Green Market. We have you know, Grand Army Plaza. And these are decent-sized markets. But they feel dwarf compared to what the Alig uh, is. Can to, provide? Yeah. Well, it's changed a lot. I mean, um, I, I have purposefully a, a, a very reasonably placed 15-euro menu, uh, menu to uh, exactly have people from the market coming to eat at my place so I've had the fishmonger I've had the f cheese lady I've had the beef man I've had the chicken man and uh, this is just all wonderful because it's it's so thrilling to be able to buy the products in the morning and then have them come and taste their products it's totally gratifying for me yeah I mean and a lot of products uh, you know coming from New York to Paris I would know um, but you spoke of ice cream before as kind of being this uh, funny cultural shift they're not really used to homemade what kind of things can you get at the Marche that you can't get here in New York oh beautiful unpasteurized cheeses <laughs> for one yes uh, I think beautiful French meat uh, there's some beautiful beautiful chicken beautiful beef beautiful pork um, beautiful French uh, salmon although you Perhaps on the Pacific coast you have a nice salmon as well. But uh, we've got some very interesting, uh, also mackerel, beautiful fresh fish. All kinds of things are, are really fun to play with. But the whole kitchen concept is, is quite different in this place because the menus are limited within their budget. Uh, I also have a very limited cooking space and I can't uh, use an oven yeah. <laughs> or uh, an electric stove or a gas stove. So I'm limited to very rudimental things. But anyways, I, I managed to pass the test and cook up a storm nonetheless. Yeah. No, we had a mackerel, I think, when we saw you too. Oh, did you have yeah. the mackerel? Yeah. It's the just, turbans. Yeah. <laughs> and, and that's what I love too. It's so playful in its terminology. Um, it's not like, you know, a classic dish where it's, you know, this with cream sauce. You know, uh, the, the turban on the plate. Yeah. <laughs> but the turbans, can you explain what that mackerel dish is? So just a, a fillet of fresh mat mackerel and then you twirl it around looking like a turban and, then, turban and then you stuff it with some currants and maybe a little bit of orange zest or lemon zest and maybe a few herbs. And uh, there you go. You throw it in the microwave and you've got some beautiful mackerel turbans. Mm. But you can also plait trout or plait chicken or plait or braid, if you prefer, braid, braid pork and do all kinds of marinades and 
wonderful presentation wise i think that's important because the 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 menus are reasonably priced yeah but that's what i said again uh, sculptural that mm. you think of these things from both a food and art yes, standpoint yes works of art as well of course yeah. it so has to look good were there other food artists or artists that happened to paint or you know talk about food in their career that you looked up to while you were in art school I was not necessarily influenced by them. Uh, they helped me during my uh, diploma, but I wouldn't say that they were actually a help. Yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> but like your your drawing style is is obviously very personal and distinct. What artist do you think uh, you have a you're, you're you're somehow akin to? Ugh. Akin to who can say that? I mean, my mother is an artist. I think I'm close to her. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> she's a very prolific ceramist and does very big pieces. And um, I think we just have that same flow in the drawing. You know, we don't really care if the thumb is bigger than the pinky. Yeah. You know, who cares? Whoop de woo. And if the other person has six toes, who cares? <laughs> it's better stability actually walking <laughs> with six toes. But uh, you, you say tile work. I mean, you have some ceramics at uh, uh, this lunch. Um, who who did those? Oh, well, I made the uh, chili pepper ladies. Yeah, yeah. And they're based on an original idea in uh, southern Italy, actually. They have uh, very industrial versions of these chili ladies. So I made my own when um, I was in my mother's studio because she has the kilns, of course. And, uh, yeah, every now and then I try and do uh, little ceramic pieces. But I'm not the ceramist. She is really the one who knows how it works. Yeah. But uh, she has some tile pieces at... Uh, at home, yeah. yes. Yes, she's done many tile pieces at home. So, and your home, too, you open up to guests. Well, yeah. The, uh, Lunch in the Loft, which was the, as they called it, the clandestine restaurant, or the camuflajos in Spanish, or the pop-up restaurant, um, that was for a good four and a half years. And now the book cookbook with all the recipes, more than a hundred, will be coming out in France in October, so it's exciting. Excellent. And Lunch in the Loft, why that concept? I mean, how did it start? Did you just want to have dinner parties, or you were you trying to teach people how to cook? It, it was really a mixture of things. Um, in France, there was a very well-known uh, grant called the Villa Medicis in the Culinary Arts in Rome, like you have the American um, section. And uh, I was finalist three years in a row, which is quite rare because I am a foreigner. Don't forget. <laughs> Um, and each time they either chose one person or they didn't choose anybody. Since then, they've taken the discipline off of the list, which I think everybody should know about because it's terrible. <laughs> and uh, the French meal has been accepted to UNESCO, believe it or not. But they've taken off the discipline of culinary arts at the Villa Medicis in France, in Rome. And so during that time, or every year, it's almost like a thesis that you have to present with a project. My project was based on Pantelleria, the island I go to, to pick capers. And it was around the, the cooking and the preservation of some of the recipes and uh, kind of an anthropological side. And, um, well, every year I just, you know, didn't make it, but almost close. And so I wanted to create something where I could cover my costs using really expensive ingredients, <laughs> not make any money at all, and uh, just have people over to be able to create 
and invent recipes. And it lasted a good four and a half years. Uh, do you remember that first meal? What were some of the recipes? Or what were some of the highlights throughout that four and a half years? Oh, well, all kinds from, you know, the, the mistakes where I forgot to put the serviettes out <laughs> and the napkins and uh, people didn't say anything. Um, I, I I'd really i am into offal. And uh, I wouldn't tell anybody about the awful. In, in fact, I, I, you know, I really wanted them so much. It was just so much a pleasure for them to taste. I would sometimes invent dishes like one would be called pressed intelligence. And it would be a terrine of lamb's brains. And I wouldn't tell anybody because, I mean, as soon as you tell people, you know, what the ingredients are, all of a sudden you'll have 12, you know, vegetarians, pseudo-vegetarians, <laughs> so forget about that. Yeah. Uh, I was really into pushing offal, for sure, and homemade cured meats and just all kinds of fabulous, it was a seven or eight course lunch. Yeah. And is, is France open to that freedom? Because I know in New York, uh, at least from a restaurant standpoint, it's hard uh, to cure your own meats. It's hard to you know, get people to uh, eat Except o- yeah, offal. Even liver. I mean, jeepers. Yeah. No. Well, no. They're, I, I think perhaps in general, people are more curious whether tourist or not. You'd be more curious in accepting something that's nicely prepared. Once it's prepared correctly i think you're more open to having it again don't you think yeah and i guess in a setting in lunch in the loft where it feels a lot more congenial it feels a lot more friendly than sitting down at a restaurant and being served like andouillette for the first time for lots of tourists freak them out andouille or andouillette yeah. 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 and what is andouillette <laughs> it's just piggy intestines it's not such a big deal yeah it smells of b-u-m so does the <laughs> andouille depending on which family whether it's the guimenet or the percheron or yeah but uh, no, no big deal. I mean, my, my mother said that fresh coriander smelled of B-U-M. So, <laughs> you know, we've gone further now. Yeah. Bigger and better things. <laughs> Less uh, B-U-M. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're going to take a quick break and come back and talk about how you're introducing lunch anew to Paris. Okay. You've been listening to The Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. We'll be right back.
grass-fed beef. Pasture raised on 150,000 acres in Central California. Hearst Ranch grass-fed beef, free-range, sustainably produced, humane. Hearst Ranch grass-fed beef, the authentic flavor of the American West. Welcome back to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel, here with the wonderful Claude Cabri, a.k.a. Miss Lunch. Miss Lunch from Paris. For all the way in. Jet lagged as well. Thank you for surviving that uh, transatlantic uh, flight for me. Um, so many things going on right now with you. Cookbooks coming out, which is super exciting. Lunch in the Loft, which is an amalgamation of four and a half years of clandestine re- uh, recipes. Um, another cookbook coming out. Wh- what might that be? Yeah, it's uh, with a very small publishing company that make beautiful books. Uh, the first one was called Le Chinois because it's based, of course, on the culinary instrument, the Chinois, mm-hmm. right? That looks like a sieve. Or the racist way to say it, the China cap. Oh, I didn't oh, know. Oh, no, that. no, actually, Chinois is not China Cap. It, but no, it does look like a yeah, pseudo yeah, China yeah. Cap. And yeah. we're not FCC regulated, so we can be mean. <laughs> <laughs> and Or otherwise, it's based on the principal character, who's this Chinaman, uh, direct in from China, um, coming in to visit this gourmet magazine, because it's a roman cuisine, you see. It's a short story and cookbook at the back of the book, and the recipes um, I created based on the characters and the places they visit in the story. And the story in the Le Chinois, do you want me to tell you about the Le Chinois? Oh, yeah, please. Oh, okay. So it's the story about this Chinaman fresh in from China who's interested in buying shares of this crappy gourmet magazine where this one woman works. And she's really badly paid, and every day she's bombarded by these horrible photos. You know, this happens. This is reality. She's bombarded by these horrible photos of food that she has to quickly invent the recipe for. And so one day there's this Chinaman who arrives who's interested in buying shares of the company and the owner says, would you like to take this man around and visit the sites with him in Paris? Well, unfortunately, that day she forgets to take her medication and she basically kidnaps him and kind of just nibbles at him (laughs) from head to foot and there's a tragic Good but sad Asian ending. And, and anyways, that's the whole story. It's Sex, Drugs, and Bain-Marie yeah. um, is the book. And so the next one out is called Plat de Résistance. And it's by the same author. That's uh, Chantal. Chantal Pelletier. She's a really well-known French noir uh, writer. She's written over 120, 100, 20 books on the noir genre, okay? And uh, this story kind of takes place in the future. It's a futuristic farce. And it's about how these people aren't allowed to eat chicken, fresh cheese, eggs, foie gras. And they kind of meet secretly. And uh, they have all these incredible feasts. And so it's a hilarious story that takes place in the future. And so then the the characters and the places they visit, I created the recipes for. And it's called Plat de Résistance, édition 1973. What is the Plat de Résistance of, I mean, is that the finale of the book? Is there one, you know, triumphal piece? There are a few. Yeah. There are a few, but then there are a few tragic things that happen throughout the story. So I'll I'll let you learn uh, French 
before the book comes out there, Harlan, and then you can Always you can read the, the short story, which is hilarious. It's in a real no, it's in a real uh, different style of writing for a change. It's in the style of uh, Odiar, the the film Odiar. Films. I don't know what is that. It's a real uh, cut, kind of cutthroat, kind of hilarious way of 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 writing uh, that's typically French from the fifties, and it's um, just one one uh, one take on a word on the other take. And all around food, it's 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 really well written. Interesting, you know, because obviously we are such food obsessed as a nation, uh, as a world. It, it seems right now that there were all these genres from you know what you just mentioned to the noir set that Chantal is writing. Mm. Um, I mean, it's such a central focus, food in France. Um, do you find it sometimes to be too much of a focus? Like people take it too seriously? Uh, well, I don't. I mean, I, it doesn't really ever bore me, but perhaps others find it too much. Because your recipes, Lunch in the Loft, are very playful. I mean, press intelligence, uh, uh, such a great play on words as well as, you know, uh, the food itself. Um, what are some of the other recipes that you've invented that are, you know, have those quips that are quirky? Ugh, yeah. You know the whole the whole thing, even behind the Miss Lunch at PPP Première Pression Provence, where I'm doing this experimental year as an artist and cook in residence. I mean, the the whole background to those products is that they must be educational, but also fun to play with. And when you start reading about the olive oil and who makes them, these small Provençal producers and when you see for example the one whose whose name is Olive Tree you know his first name is Olivier <laughs> and when you see his photo and he looks like an olive you know literally looks like an olive it's it's very creative everything is creative and it's a huge adventure in olive oil there are so many recipes there's so many things that one can can play with it's the opportunity to have the time to be able to, to do all these creations. That's just so wonderful. Yeah, and so your cooking classes where you give people a time to, you know, uh, play with food, um, what's inclusive of it? You you have single people, you have couples, you have groups. It, well, so now that everything is transferred to the PPP location where I'm there for a year, um, the kitchen being quite small, it's, um, it's open to those who would like to take a day course or an evening course. The day course includes a little olive oil tasting, olive oil tasting, which you do with a spoon, okay, with no bread allowed. And you have to try and do it by breathing in your nose. Because, you know, once you get air happening in the mouth, it changes the taste of the olive oil. Can you make that sound, the breathe in the nose sound? Because, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You've got to breathe in and not breathe in with your mouth. It takes a bit of practice. Yeah. So we'll do a tasting from the three families. So we've got the um, black olives. So there are quite a few different kinds of olive oil from the black olive family group. Mid-ripe group and then the very green, you know, a green olive and a black olive is the same thing. You do know that, don't you? Now I do. You're not, you're <laughs> not one of those. You did know that, didn't you? Well, um, we'll assume that I do. <laughs> <laughs> so um, depending on where the... Olive Grove is located, you know, either close to the sea or high up in the mountains. When the harvest takes place, you know, way up in the mountains when there's still snow, so maybe as late as January 
or maybe as soon as October, end of October. All those things really affect the taste, and it's really small parcels of land in Provence, so it's just an, an incredible adventure. I feel as though I've met all of these olive oil producers under PPP. Obviously, I haven't, but I have met quite a few. Yeah, um, you being so involved with these, uh, you know, people's product, um, and actually knowing some of these producers, seems so much like your Pantaleria project. Um, it, it's very personal. I've also realized how many P words I've used in a row. <laughs> <laughs> um, but Pantaleria, it's obviously a very special place to you. Um, how do you harvest capers, um, and how do you hope to bring Pantaleria to? Uh, the world and make well, it into a Well, it's sweet of you to bring up Pantelleria. It was brought up maybe 30 years ago in good old Gourmet magazine because Armani was one of the first stars to buy some land. It's a very volcanic and agricultural island, and it's a place that I just love going to. My aunt, who has since then passed away, married an Italian, and she decided to buy a house she was a landscape architect, so she totally redesigned the house. And, of course, on this land, there were capers and olives. <coughs> and so I decided to create the Pantelleria cookbook, being that I would go there for all, all year round. There are all kinds of things you can do, from swimming in the sea to swimming in thermal uh, caves, saunas uh, to very hot waters in the sea there are all kinds of things and so capers are very uh, important lentils used to be an important agricultural point to the island but since then they've stopped cultivating uh, lentils which is terrible because they've all become very um, how do you say they've all become quite uh, um, high high uh, levels of uh, cholesterol oh yeah yeah, because they've stopped eating their lentils because they haven't huh. grown them anymore. And uh, capers start in May, so it's kind of little bushies, bushes that uh, either spurt up between the volcanic rocks or on the land that is prepared for the capers. It's back-breaking work, but yeah. I love it. It's very meditational. And uh, you just pick and you pick and you pick until you drop. And uh, those that you haven't picked, of course, the bud flowers after, and then it turns into the pickle, which is known as the kukunchi, which you can also pick. But it's the variety in Pantelleria that is just so delightful because other varieties of capers are just awful, especially the kukunchi, because there are many varieties of capers. Um, some are very seedy, huge, big seeds. They crunch under the tongue. It's just awful. So, I mean, what is the ideal texture and taste of a caper? It must be very fleury. It must be very flowery. It mustn't be too salty, so you must... I prepare them in the salty brine, of course, to get rid of their acidity. And then you have to re-salt them. But the whole idea is to eat them within the year, and then you pick more for the next year. That's why the supermarket brands, you know, that are 300 years old, sitting in vinegar are just atrocious, <laughs> and, which is unfortunately why a lot of people don't like capers. I've converted a lot of people into liking capers, and they're good for so many things. Yeah, so salt-packed. That's yes. what people should look for, yeah. first and foremost. But not old-looking salt-packed yeah. bottles. So you don't eat a vintage on your caper. <laughs> Have it the year of. <laughs> the year of would be better, but you know, it's, it fights against depression. Yeah. It's good for the spleen. Uh, innuendo. Uh, it fights against uh, a lot of common maladies. Yeah. 
And you have plenty of capers at PPP. Plenty of capers and for the moment. So you're in New York for this week, and I'm so glad because I get to hang I'm out thrilled. with you. Um, but heading back to Paris, uh, Miss Lunch is back September 5th. Uh, for those of you who are in France, uh, Lunch in the Loft returns September 16th. There's still some spots open. Uh, where can people uh, make reservations? They go to luncheintheloft.com? Yeah, www.luncheintheloft.com. Um, that week of the 5th, I've actually got the people from Road Scholar who are on a Julia Child tribute trip. And they'll be visiting me for uh, market visits and uh, lunches and even dinners, but at my home, uh, which is quite wonderful. So it'll be a mix of, of people the week I get back. Yeah. And then, of course, I can't go without mentioning Baron Bouche. The Baron Bouge? Yeah. <laughs> the old wine bar around the corner. Well, there are lots of places to visit at the wine bar. There's also a wonderful uh, caviste uh, wine lady who sells only wine from the Long Duck region, which is quite exceptional. Oh, the Cousin Oscar. Cousin Oscar <laughs> comes from her, Sophie, yeah, yeah, yeah. from the Cru du Soleil. Yeah. yeah, but I mean, it's amazing. I mean, New York has always had a lot of shops, had a lot of commerce, but all right within the Marche de la Ligue, uh, there has been so much for a decent amount of time from boulangers to wine shops to wonderful wine bars uh, and that flourishing market. Um, and anyone who's visiting in Paris should know to visit that spot. I think it is such a great nexus of wonderful food things happening. We're spoilt to have the market because it's really a permanent market in that it's open every morning, except Monday, of course. And then the covered market opens up again in the evening where the specialty products are sold. So yeah. We're well, very spoiled. Well, I have you too. Uh, favorite places in Paris to go, aside from the Marche itself. What restaurants do you go to? What wine bars? What do you think people should experience while being in Paris? Well, I think it's it's really nice to buy very good quality oysters. The oysters in France change, you know, according to all along the Atlantic coast. So you could easily pick up a few and just shuck them yourself at home. Um, otherwise, you could go out for a splurge and get a nice seafood platter. I think it's just so much fun to have your own seafood platter because you get the cockles. You get the periwinkles, yeah, and then you get the sea snails. You know what happens with the sea snails? No, you've had happens? the sea. You haven't had the sea snails. I don't think well, so. Well, you've got to pull them out with a little fork. Yeah, rip off the duodenum, which is quite big, then plonk it in some lovely industrial, or maybe it's homemade mayonnaise. Doesn't really matter for this kind of a fish. <laughs> I do it. I do admit that. And then you close your eyes and you pop it in your mouth. It's a wonderful experience. And these, you know, towering fish seafood platters. You know, three or four. Stories. It's a delight to share with a, a friend, and you drink wine all afternoon or all evening, and you, you have from the crab, you know, to the shrimps, to the periwinkles, to the cockles, to the sea snails, and the oysters, and the raw mussels, which are a must. You must have raw mussels. It's just so much fun. So what I hear you preaching is you must cook at home or with somebody else, and I can attest to that after having visited you the first time and got to cook with Eric while you were away. Um, <laughs> Blood sausage, uh, raw oysters. I mean, it was one of the best meals I've had in a long time, not just because of the quality of food, but obviously quality of company, but just the whole ambiance of, you know, being able to play with food in that aspect in Paris is uh, often overseen. You know, everyone goes to bistros, goes to this, but being able to interpret food your own way with that product is uh, an experience. So everyone do that. <laughs> 
Play with food, art and food. I don't think there's anything more to say, do you? I don't know. Is there anything? Is there any time left? Can we crack a joke? Yeah, yeah. Let, let's hear yeah. you say some uh, French joke. Well, there are a lot of um, French Tootsie Rolls are called Carambars, and they have the most religious, ridiculous jokes inside of them. But, uh, you know, the hell with it. I'll tell you one of them. Uh, one of the jokes translated like this would be, uh, my wife's legs are so long that when she jumps on a horse, she has to wear roller skates. <laughs> And let's hear it in French. <laughs> <laughs> Did you get it though when I told it oh, to you? Oh yeah, I got it. Ma femme elle a des jambes tellement longues que quand elle se met à cheval, elle doit mettre elle se elle doit se mettre des rollers. I don't think we've be- had a better outro ever on this show. So we're going Eric agrees. <laughs> la, 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 la. <laughs> we're going to leave it at that. Claude, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Harlan. Uh, you're the best. Lunchintheloft.com. Rock Brooklyn. <laughs> Head out to Paris. You've been listening to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. Hoping to have you here next Tuesday at 3. Cheers. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. HeritageRadioNetwork.org is the most trusted media outlet for real, quality conversations about food. That experience will come to life at our first annual members-only fundraiser party on September 9th from 5 to 8 p.m. at Roberta's Pizza in Bushwick, Brooklyn. Enjoy the best food in the world from talent including Michael Anthony, award-winning chef from Gramercy Tavern, Brooks Headley, award-winning pastry chef from Del Posto, Shauna Pacifico at Back 40 West, sustainable seafood from Sea to Table, and much more, including drinks made by Dave Arnold, host of Cooking Issues, craft beer from Greenpoint Harbor Brewery, wine from Cane Vineyard and Winery in the Napa Valley, and plenty more. Radio is back, and this will be a special, exclusive experience in the back garden of Roberta's that you don't want to miss. September 9th, 5 to 8 p.m. Buy tickets at heritageradionetwork.eventbrite.com.